Hello, beloveds, and welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which it seems people have always lived. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? The theme song you heard is a recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement, We Are Building Up a New World. This recording is from a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014. It was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for the podcast. I'm Jean Jeffress, and I'm back with you during this time of pandemic and global uprisings and election season. And also, my state, California, is on fire, so there's that. I'm still grateful for the invitation to contribute my thoughts and words to this body of work. I'm a pastor in the United Church of Christ and a candidate for ordination in the United Church of Christ. And I'm happy to say that my ordination is actually coming up this November. It's been a long, long journey, and it's finally going to happen and I'm very happy. Yay. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I currently live in the city of Oakland, which exists on the ancestral lands of the Ohlone people. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white people. The idea is that white people would talk to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe that white people, like many of you listening now and like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting and interrupting white supremacy wherever we might find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you and especially from black and brown people who might be listening and from listeners of all faith traditions. We welcome your feedback and we pray that this body of work is helping to tear down white supremacy. The word is resistance. For the past several episodes, we've been journeying through the origin and liberation narratives of the ancient Hebrew people. These have been our lectionary selections during this not particularly ordinary, ordinary time. These stories follow the people of Israel from Abraham all the way through Exodus to the arrival in the Promised Land. It's a long narrative arc stretching from Genesis to Joshua, and it's got everything, intrigue, betrayal, deceit, murder, infidelity, polygamy, chicanery, and at times it's a hot mess. But in it are lessons for us about how these ancient people broke free of unjust systems and harmful social norms, or how they didn't. We've been calling this series Hashtag Journeys to Freedom, Let's keep trying to get free. This week is the continuation of the Exodus saga. Exodus is a story about a people in the bondage of slavery and genocide, how they resisted with civil disobedience and ritual, about the futility and brutality of Pharaoh-style politics, 
about getting free and the cost of that freedom, about trauma and scarcity, about lots and lots of complaining, about trusting God, well, sort of trusting God, about the perils of being in a leadership role for Moses. And Exodus is about the formation of covenant, the agreements about how we're going to be with God and with each other. And in this week's passage, the covenant comes in the form of what we know today as the Ten Commandments, instructions and prohibitions for how to be God's people. I'm a little bit sad that I never have seen the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, but I guess it's actually good because otherwise this whole podcast would just be a cheap parody of that movie, potentially with sound clips and everything. However, as it is, I will offer my reflection on covenant with an eye toward how much the white supremacy covenant really sucks. Today's passage says, then God, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, at Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol, whether Make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses the Lord's name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Honor your father and mother, so that your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come only to test you and put the fear of God upon you so that you will not sin, so that you do not sin. The word of the God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, I changed a couple of words in the NRSV translation so that we didn't have God use he, his pronouns. Just my preference, just so you know. Moses and these people, the ancient Israelites, had been through so much. They lived through slavery and genocide. They lived through all the crazy plagues in the land of Egypt, which even though the plagues were focused on the Egyptian, the trauma of all those situations was widespread. They lived through the militarized oppression of their bodies being targeted and chased by soldiers, a narrow escape through the sea. And by the way, all this could have been written yesterday. Unfortunately, Pharaoh-style politics are alive and well and have been for thousands of years, even after Exodus. 
We drop into today's story after their harrowing escape, after their fear of starving to death or dying of thirst, after their longing for the familiar land of Egypt, even though they weren't free, at least they knew what would happen, at least they had provisions. When we enter the story today, we find God giving the people a whole set of instructions. These instructions start with, I am the Lord, and that is all capitalized, so that is Yahweh. I'm Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God initiates the covenant. God wants a monogamous relationship with the people. God wants to be God's people. And the people will have responsibilities in this relationship. So this is my contemporary interpretation of the rest of these commandments. Take a day off to honor whatever is sacred in your life, please. Honor your elders and your ancestors. Don't kill each other, please. Don't sleep with each other's partners unless everyone is in agreement and has good boundaries. Don't steal from each other for crying out loud. Don't lie on each other, seriously. Don't borrow stuff and never give it back. Don't. God was asking those ancient people and is asking us to treat each other, to treat our families and our family lines and ourselves with some semblance of respect. And of course, to remember that God is God. God sets us free, and we respect each other. It seems reasonable. But the scripture narratives are full of stories of people getting with God, then breaking the covenant, then ensuing chaos, then getting back with God. God's always waiting. God's people are always behind. A covenant is an agreement about how we are going to be with each other how we are going to behave with each other, treat each other, deal with conflict, use our power, and protect those with less power. If you belong to a church, you probably agreed to a covenant. A marriage is a covenant. People in ministry enter into a covenant with the church or organization and the people that that church or organization serves. The thing I like about the Ten Commandments, something I think I never thought I would say, is that the first one is to remember who God is and what God has done and do not put anything before God. I like that. The thing is, friends, is that in this nation, the U.S. of A, the naked truth is that white supremacy has been put before a god of liberation and is the power upon whose altar all of civilization would be, is being sacrificed for the sake of and lifting up of the mythological greatness of white supremacist origins 
upon which this nation was founded. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you already know this. Thanksgiving is coming. The holiday upon which so much of our national origin mythology enjoys widespread legitimacy. White people all over America can understand that their nation was founded by harassed English colonists looking for religious freedom, the pilgrims, and that these pilgrims were met and helped by the native people of the land who taught them how to survive, and at some point they shared a harvest meal, the first Thanksgiving. That's what I learned in elementary school. What did you learn? Thanksgiving was declared a national holiday by Lincoln after the Civil War, trying to bring unity to a country that had nearly destroyed itself to preserve white supremacy in the form of the legal enslavement of black people. In, this, in his book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, David Silberman says, that the Pilgrim mythology grew out of Plymouth Town's attempt to drum up civic pride and tourism. He also says, this is a long quote, the Pilgrim saga also found utility in the nation's culture wars. It, It was no coincidence that authorities began trumpeting the Pilgrims as national founders amid widespread anxiety that the country was be was beginning to be overrun by Catholic and then Jewish immigrants unappreciative of America's Protestant democratic origins and unfamiliar with its values. Depicting the the pilgrims as the epitome of colonial America also served to minimize the country's longstanding history of racial oppression at a time when Jim Crow was working to return blacks in the South to as close to enslavement as possible and racial segregation was becoming the norm nearly everywhere else. The Pilgrim mythology is powerful stuff. It whitewashed the racism and brutality of our specific nation-building narrative to create a people of civic reasonableness and religious purity. And since those people were white in appearance, it turns out that whiteness is also reasonable and pure. How convenient. Kelly Brown Douglas in her book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God, says, another sort of long quote, Pilgrim and Puritan Americans were certain that the American story was God's story. They were the progenitors of America's predominant sacred canopies. Both canopies, the civil and Christian, assumed that God was acting through American history to bring about God's vision for the world. This vision was effectively indistinguishable from the Anglo-Saxon American vision for freedom and democracy. White supremacy, God-ordained whiteness, is baked into everything, affects everything, so much so that our covenant as a people, and I'm talking to white people now, our agreement on how to be with each other is not with God, but with whiteness. nationalists claim to want a white nation. Let's just say, 
for the sake of awesome utopian science fiction that every person of color is beamed away to a better, more peaceful planet where they can live without white supremacy. Imagine it. Now come back to Earth. How do you feel? Here's the thing. White people do terrible things to white people. Have done for centuries. Resma Menachem, in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathways to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies, talks about the torture, abuse, and violence that white people inflicted on other white people in Europe and England for centuries before any ships left for other places. Unspeakable things. Have you ever been to the Tower of London? It's not just a haunted house. It's a place where people were tied to racks, locked in stocks, burned, impaled, fed alive to rats, and so forth. These were typical punishments and were often done in public. I think it would not take more than two seconds for our glorious new white nation, so desired by some, to turn into a horror show of white people destroying other white people, hating other white people. The problem isn't skin color or ethnic origin or anything else. The problem is, and I don't know if it's just a white person thing or if it's the human condition thing, but I'm speaking about white people right now. The problem is we don't love us. We don't love us. We don't love us. We love power. And in this nation, Power is white supremacy and all that it will get us. We forget the first commandment. We put something before God and chaos has ensued. We have lost the covenant, broken the agreement. In a recent conversation, I was asked the question, do white people deserve healing? Wow. If we don't love us, nobody is going to love us. My work right now in the fight for racial justice is to try to love white people. It's actually not as easy as it would seem. There is a certain disregard that has become normalized with me regarding other white people. I want to denormalize it. I can never expect to be whole and healed in this world and in this lifetime unless I am able to give and receive love as a white, per a white person to other white people. I'm not talking about love that doesn't hold people accountable. I'm not talking about running out into the middle of a white nationalist march and hugging people like photo op love. I'm talking about calling white people into wholeness and paying the cost for that relationship building. I'm talking about love as a duty for collective wholeness. In the fire next time, James Baldwin wrote, there appears a vast amount of confusion on this point, but I do not know many Negroes who are eager to be accepted by white people. Still less to be loved by them. They, the blacks, simply don't wish to be beaten over the head by the whites every instant of our brief passage on this planet. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist for it will not be needed. James Baldwin was extremely generous in his writing about white people, extremely generous. 
We got to love on each other. Not sappy love, but the hard love of pulling each other up out of the haze and sickness of white supremacy into wholeness. And it's on us, white folks. It's on us. Now, in this podcast, I've quoted all black writers and scholars. And of course, that's great. And that's wonderful. But I want to leave you with the poetry of a white woman who found a way out of her traumatic circumstances into loving herself through nature and words. And she chose to share that love with the world. This is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver from her book, Dream Work. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the deep trees and the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. My call to action this week is that you re-examine any covenants you are in, if you are in any, and remember that God is still God. What are the agreements that you have made with your people? Are you following them? Are you putting something before God? Can you really love your people if you've put something before a God of liberation? Examine all that. And then, while you're at it, download the Surge Community Safety for All Congregational Action Toolkit. You can download it. There's a link in the transcript. And there'll be a little bit more information in the resource section. Thank you so much for joining me wherever you are in the world today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud, Twitter, or Facebook pages. Next week, we have Seth Whispelway bringing a resistance word. And I think it's a golden calf thing. I hope so. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max. Blessings to you all in what you do. Love and liberation to you all. And until next time, I'm Jean Jeffers.